1: All right. Happy Wednesday, everybody. It is July nineteenth. I swear to God, it is like a thousand degrees out here in Seattle and it is never hot. So hope you guys are keeping cool out there. We have a good episode in front of us with Britt Foshi down there in Florida. Britt, I'm sure you guys are getting tons of heat down there if it's uh, if it's hot here in Seattle.
0: We get the heat and the humidity in South Florida. So <laughs> Not just topic, I feel like you're in a sauna, so. There you go. Uh,
1: Britt, thank you very much for hopping on the show. Um, I know that you are an expert at flipping. That's your bread and butter. We like to hear flippers. Uh, you guys you guys run the show down there in the, in the single family game. So super excited to jump into this. Um, I told you before we got on here, we like stories. So why don't you take us to the beginning of your story? How'd you get started in real estate?
0: Yeah. So I, I grew up in sort of a low class household and just decided really early on that I did not want to live like that the rest of my life. And so I was kind of an entrepreneur early on in my life. And uh, I just had always sort of gravitated towards real estate. And so um, yeah, I had saved up about $8,000 and was able to purchase my first property. And it was actually right at the time sort of the housing market was falling apart. And so I wasn't smart enough to to know any better. I This just, was in
1: like 2008?
0: Yeah. So 2009 was actually when I bought my first property and I didn't know any better. So I just was buying and they were actually uh, offering a a tax buyer credit for first time buyers. Mm. So if you're going to buy a property, the government will just mail you a check. And my check was for like $8,500. And so I had only saved up about eight grand. That's what it cost me to get into it. And I had to kind of wait a couple of weeks till I got that check back. And that was the money that I actually used to like rehab the property. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I lived in that property for two years and then I sold it for, I think I made like $40,000 in the first property and I I lived in it. So I sold it two years later, which means I got to keep all of that money tax free. Mm. And um, that was all that I needed. That was like my first taste of blood. And I just was like, that was it. So took that money, rolled it into another property, ended up buying a rental. And that kind of is how like my story started. And yeah.
1: Nice. Yeah. If you get a good taste in your mouth from that first deal, it is, uh, it's so crucial to your motivation, um, you know, to get that first deal and under the belt with a positive ROI. Sounds like you got that. Um, Was that down there in Florida, in Fort Myers?
0: Yeah, it was. Yep. You got an $8,000 house in Florida. That is, that's crazy. That's what it cost for me to get into it. So that was my down payment. Um, Okay. Okay. I still was able to get a loan. But at the time, I mean, that home traded, I think, for like, $90,000, $90,000, something like wow. that. I mean, I got a three bed, two bath pool home in Fort Myers for 90 grand. I mean, that tells you how distressed the market was at the time. So
1: yeah. Yeah. In Fort Myers, isn't the median household, it's got to be nearing 400 at this point, right?
0: Yeah. I would say it's about four, four fifty. Yep.
1: Yeah. That's crazy. Um. Well, great. I mean, you got into that first one, you got it done. Uh, you had that check in your hand, 40,000. I know that You know, when you get that first deal done, a 40,000 check feels like a million dollars. It just feels like you can take that and retire on it. But uh, after you finished that first deal, what was the next step for you?
0: Yeah. So I kind of split the money into two, right? And I took like half the money and then I went and bought a rental property. Mm. And then I took the other half of the money and then I bought my next flip. And that's kind of how I've managed my portfolio in a way, even up until today, which is like the more cash I get, the more rentals I buy, but the more cash I need to kind of build my flipping operation. And so, you know, that led me to, you know, my next three or four rentals, my next three or four flips. And, you know, after about my third or fourth flip, I remember having lunch with this guy named Greg. And I sat down with Greg, it was on a Sunday and we were having lunch and he just said, Hey, like, what do you do? And this is, I said this, and at the end of the lunch, he's kind of an older guy. He looked at me and he just goes kind of like under his breath. He goes, well, he goes, if you ever need any capital, let me know. And that was like the first time anyone had like, you know, mentioned money or investing or anything to me. And like, I was still young at the time. I was just like, all right, this guy wants to give me money. Let's go. So the the next day I wrote this guy an email. I already had a property lined up. So this is the property. Here's the numbers. And this guy was like in, he was like, all right, let's do it. And so close on that property with my first investor. And that's kind of the story of how I started taking on outside capital and, and really sort of Escalated like the growing process for me was bringing on those investors.
1: Yeah, once you hit that, um, you know that barrier from going using your own capital to using somebody else's capital, I feel like that's a big step in any investor's journey. Um, So, how did you? I I missed that part of the story. How did you meet up with this guy?
0: Yeah, so we actually went to the same church, and so after church one day, we we just were having lunch together. And he just was like, yeah, what do you do? And like, I started explaining it to him and kind of ran through some of the numbers and some of the, the projects that we had done. I even like showed him pictures. I was not pitching this guy. It wasn't crossing my mind that he would be event, uh, an investor. And so, but like I said, afterwards, after that conversation, he just was kind of like, well, man, if you ever need money, you know, let me know. And and so that that was it. Pitched him the next deal, sent him some photos, some numbers, made sense to him. and And I was off to the races sort of there with my first investor.
1: Yeah, that I feel like that's really I like the story because it really shows um, the importance of relationships, not when even hard relationships are going out there trying to find investors, but just a your standard. I meet a guy at church or I meet a guy, you know, at the gym and I'm having a conversation talking about what we do. Um, every relationship is super important, both to you in, in your person and also to your career, because you never know when somebody's just going to stand up and say, hey, I like what you're doing. I'd love to be part of it. How can I you know, invest in your next deal?
0: Yeah. And I And I love this idea that I, I want to make sure that people know what I'm doing, right? Mm-hmm. And to this day, Gabe, I've never pitched anyone on yeah. raising capital. I've been able to just attract capital. And so I think if you just plant enough seeds and nurture enough relationships that over time, people will come to you and be like, hey, man, do you need money? And that's been my story. And I've been fortunate enough to raise capital through that lens.
1: Nice. I like how you put that attract capital versus, um, I can't remember the other way you said it, but basically pitch to find capital. Uh, I think that's super important. And it really does come down to just talking about it. Just, you know, letting people know what you're doing, putting on social media. Hey, I just closed this deal. Super excited about it. Um, and you don't even have to say, reach out if you want to invest, just close the deal. Super excited about it.
0: That's right. That's right.
1: Awesome. So once you, uh, You closed that first deal with outside capital. I'm sure is a big step for you. Uh, And but you've done 35, it looks like 35 million dollars in flips since then. So that wasn't your last deal. How did you scale from that point?
0: Yeah. So at the time, I was sort of doing everything myself. Right. I was sourcing the deal, sourcing the capital. I was running the rehabs. I was the agent on the sales side. I mean, I was a one man band. And so you
1: were uh, an agent as well.
0: That's right. Yeah. So I was selling the property, and you know, I was I was that was saving me money, right? I was taking the commission as well. And so um what I learned quickly was that I was only going to be able to do probably like five or six deals a year with those that many hats on. And so I just started to scale my team at that point. And so I I brought on my brother actually to run all of the construction side of my company. Um, that was like my first hire. My next hire was like an acquisitions manager, someone who just went out and sort of you know, source deals for me, and so the next step for me was is to really grow my team. You know, gr- grow the sort of the reach that I had, and that was that was the way I did it. Was just started hiring people.
1: Nice, yeah. Um, I mean, it's so when we start our businesses, it's so easy to try to do everything ourselves, but that is the easiest way to burn out, at least in my experience. Um, so, what were you started hiring? It sounds like your brother took on construction management and then you got somebody for acquisitions. What were the next couple of uh, positions that you hired for?
0: So we did what I would call like a transaction coordinator. So mm. this person sort of took it from the acquisitions and they got it to closing and they would do the same on the sales side. Whenever we went to sale sell the property, they would co- making sure it just got to the closing line. And then we hired on some additional um, like foremen for our the construction crews as as that side of the business grew, and so that's that's it. In my right now my team's about five people, and um, I just recently hired a social media guy, so he's doing all of my social media now. And um, yeah, that's where we're at today. We've yeah. we've done about two hundred transactions and flips, and just over thirty five million dollars, ranging anywhere from like the two hundred thousand dollar flip. All the way up to the three four five million dollar flip um we've we've done them all so
1: yeah i mean that's one of my favorite things about real estate is uh you can do it lean and mean you can be a one-man band you can do have a five-man team or you can have a 300 person company um and either way it still works so sounds like you guys are, are going lean and mean you got the five-man crew there um, for for your actual strategy, you guys do fix and flips. Is there anything else inside of there that you uh, focus on, or is it exclusively flipping?
0: Yeah, I mean, we do we do a little bit of everything. and and what i what I tell people is we're kind of just opportunist. And mm. so we find opportunity. we we seize on it, so we put it under contract, and then we decide what to do with it from there. So sometimes we will add it to our rental portfolio, sometimes we'll add it to our airbnb portfolio sometimes we'll just wholesale it so we'll just sell it off to another investor sometimes we'll close on it as is and sell it as is we'll never actually even do any rehab so our job is to like bring in the the opportunities and then decide where what direction is this property best suited and sort of what is the most highest return of capital on this project and you know each project's different some you know we get into situations where it's going to cost us $50,000 to rehab it but we're only going to get about a $50,000 return when we actually do rehab it so we're getting a one for one trade that's a bad trade but we still know there's opportunity there so we could buy it and still make 20 or 30 grand on a resale and so those are the types of things we're evaluating as we bring in properties but um we're opportunists and you know we decide from there where the property should go
1: yeah and i feel like that's the best way especially in single family um, commercial as well, but it's the best way to go about any deal is to um, have all of these tools in your tool belt that you can apply to the deal. Because you know, if it doesn't work as a flip, it might work as a long-term hold, or it might work as a, a wholesale. You just never know. Um, you got to take the opportunity as it stands and, and decide which strategy is best for it.
0: That's right. Yeah.
1: Um. I heard you mention Airbnbs in there. I've been uh, recently, you know, our focus is self-storage, mobile home parks, uh, but I've been wanting to buy an Airbnb for our family to use, you know, during the, vac- for our own vacations, but then we can use it as an Airbnb during the rest of the year. Um, and I found it's really difficult to underwrite these, at least for myself. How do you decide um, what should be an Airbnb versus what should be a long-term hold?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. And it is difficult, even as someone who does it, I still find it to be very difficult. You know, one of the things that we're looking for in an Airbnb is we're looking for some sort of attraction. So Mm. is it near an airport? Is it near a college? Is it near somewhere where people are going to have to travel frequently? And is does the property have vibes of a place that people would want to, you know, vacation at? So Typically our Airbnbs in Florida always have pools. And like we're mm. not going to do an Airbnb without a pool. It's like actually the number one thing people ask us when they inquire is does the property have a pool? And so and then from there we're just looking for locations and if there's anything special or unique about the property that we think a guest might enjoy as a short-term stay, that's always a plus for us. And and that's really just aesthetic or it might be a a funky backyard, or maybe there's a bar in the backyard. Something that just would be like kind of cool. We find that Airbnb guests really like experiential stays, things that are just unique and different. If a property has that, that means it might be a great Airbnb, but can be very tricky to underwrite. And you know, there's software's out there, AirDNA is a software you can use, but I honestly don't even trust that as much. So I'm typically, doing my own underwriting by just kind of diving into local Airbnbs, what they're going for. And um, underwrite them from there.
1: Yeah, we actually we just had one um, under contract in Port Angeles that uh, when I was doing the underwriting, the uh, the the um, rental rates were so varied throughout the the market, and I just couldn't, you know, it, my estimations, my pro forma was, between forty thousand dollars a year and one hundred and twenty thousand dollars a year, and right. so I was like, I have, I honestly can't, I have no idea, and so I, I can't close on it because you know I, I don't have. There wasn't enough confidence behind it, and so how do you um, decide? Well, I guess that's that really depends on the market, but how do you decide what the rental rate will be? Is it just looking at comps or?
0: Yeah, it, it is very complex, and it can be hard to like quantify things. But you know, the forty to one hundred and twenty thousand range that you're describing is actually that's exactly how it is anywhere you go. And so you have just decide like, am I closer to that forty thousand dollar property? Am I closer mm-hmm. to that? Does mine have a pool? Has it been recently updated? Is it nicely decorated? Because the one that the one that's on the lower end, my guess is that's just like a low end, you know, a host that doesn't care. It's like a quick in and out stays. And so probably has bad reviews. And so like if that's the kind of host you're going to be, then, yeah, like that's how you need to underwrite the property. But if you're going to be like a higher end host, nice property, clean, keep it updated. You know, that's where I would move towards that direction. And again, hard to like quantify that. I don't know if there's a formula you can use. But I, I think you know any of your guests listening could could do enough due diligence and sort of deduction on their own to figure out where their property might land in that range. But the ranges are very wide. Yep.
1: Um, two other strategies that I heard you mention was wholesaling, and then also I think they call it wholesaling where you buy the property and then just list it automatically. That's right. Um, how do you decide which of those two uh, strategies to use? Because they are very very similar.
0: Yeah, so we prefer wholesaling because wholesaling almost always gets us a larger return, right?
1: And if that's buying to- it and then relisting it, right?
0: Exactly. We just buy it okay. as is and then just turn around and sell it, right? And then we, you know, maybe maybe we do a quick clean out of it or something. Or mm. at that point, we we usually label it as a rehab. But I'm I'm talking about literally just taking it as it is and selling it. We prefer to wholesale it because that gets us more exposure to the most amount of buyers, right? By mm. getting it on the MLS more exposure, more buyers, higher price. So if we wholesale it, we're going to actually take a lower return. So how we decide that is pretty simple. We just have to determine, can the property be financed or not um, Mm. through traditional means? If it can be financed traditionally, we're going to wholesale it. If it cannot be financed traditionally, we're going to wholesale it off to an investor who we know can either close with cash, hard money quickly, that kind of thing.
1: Yep. That makes a lot of sense. Cool, man. Well, hey, I just took a peek at the clock. It looks like we've run it down. So it's time to jump into the quick question round. Are you ready? I'm ready. Let's do it. Starts with books or any form of education. Give me two recommendations, one for general life wisdom, one for real estate.
0: Yeah. um, General life. I I like a a book called Money. Um, Yeah. I forget the author's name, but he basically just describes the history of money, And he goes through literally how it started back, you know, in in the early centuries and all the way up to where we are today. It gives you a really good foundational understanding of how money works and how it's much different today than it was some two, 3,000 years ago. Loved it. It was very helpful for me.
1: Is that uh, by Jacob Goldstein?
0: It is. Mm
1: -hmm. There you go. Just pulled it up on Amazon. It's got good reviews.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's a great book.
1: Nice. Um, how about, wait, was that general life wisdom or was that real? estate?
0: I I put it under general life, but yeah,
1: that's, that's fair. Give me one for real estate.
0: Yeah. Real estate. I'm going to go super cliche here. Rich dad, poor dad. Um, sorry. I'm sure you've heard that a thousand (laughs) times, Uh, but for me, uh, it was the one book that once I read it totally transformed the way I viewed money, life, and particularly real estate. And so that's, that was the game changing book for me.
1: Yeah, no, that's fair. It's uh, same for me and for a lot of people that have come on this show. A lot of people say that, but there's uh, no shame in it because it is a good book, especially for those just getting started.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: All right. Next question is for your younger self. So let's go back to the Brit who had no experience in real estate. He was just getting started. Go to him, look him in the eye, give him one piece of advice moving forward.
0: Yeah, I just talked about this on my Instagram. You know, The one piece of advice that I would give myself is to go slower, but bigger. Um, you know, when I was young, I went fast and small. I did a lot of deals and I did them really fast. My advice would be, Hey man, go slower, but actually go bigger. That would be my piece of advice.
1: Yeah. That I feel like that's really good advice. Um, to me, when I hear that, I I think systems, because that's what slow and big kind of works out to be is just building the systems, building the foundation, uh, that you can pile, you know, more volume into uh, versus just getting those quick deals done.
0: Sure. I agree.
1: All right. This next one, uh, I think I know what you're going to say, but I'm going to ask it anyone. Anyways, this is about the US. It's a big, big place, a lot of opportunity out there. Give me the single metro that you're most excited about investing in today.
0: I like my own metro. Um, Yeah, I I, I have reasons why too. I I think Florida particularly is a bit of a hub right now for growth. I would put Florida up against any state in terms of investing right now. And then particularly um, South Florida, even specifically my unique market is, we got hit really hard by Hurricane Ian just about Mm. nine months ago. And so many opportunities have come because of that and are still surfacing because of the hurricane that I would put my market up against any market in terms of the opportunities that are available. And um, yeah, I love the market I'm in right now.
1: That's a, you know, I've, I've been past a few deals in Florida and I, I keep passing on them because um, because of the hurricanes. How do you, this is not in the quick question round, but I'm curious, yeah. how do you uh, take, you know, the fact that there are hurricanes into consideration when you're investing down there in Florida?
0: Insurance. I mean, yeah, I mean, insurance, I mean, uh, I'm not going to lie, like Hurricane Ian sucked for my business. It put just through a lot of wrenches into the system, right? But the reality is, is I had insurance. So insurance Mm. paid me off for all the expenses that I incurred for the lost rents that I incurred. And so, you know, now, now my insurance is more expensive today. So, you know, it's a give and take, but you know, you underwrite it with good insurance. And, um, that's, you know, that's what I'd say.
1: Yeah. Makes sense. All right. This next one, I'm curious what you're going to say here. Uh, every, every, uh, transaction that we get into, it starts with finding the deal, finding the lead. So what is your favorite way to find good deals?
0: Man, I'm a networker. So um, you know, I don't have a secret sauce, some some secret that you guys don't know. My secret <laughs> is I pick up the phone and I call people and I, I don't pitch or ask for deals. I literally just stay relational with everyone. Hey, how's it going? What are you into? What's happening in your life? And I do this over and over and over again. I do it on, on social media as well. Like I legit, not somebody for me, I legit will reach out to people and DM them and say, how's it going? I love that deal. And I just stay top of mind for people. And then I hope that when they have a deal, they'll bring it to me. And that seems to be uh, what happens. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, network, especially with social media now, if you're, if you personally do it and you're reaching out to people, it, uh, it really is effective. Um, all right. Next question is about mentors. None of us are islands. We all stand on the shoulders of giants. So who is one mentor who has contributed significantly to your career today?
0: Yeah. There's a guy named Mike Deeskin. He's actually the broker who I hang my license under. And as I was just getting started, he was a guy who had 30 or 40 doors himself. And you know, I was kind of a figure it out myself guy, but I, I learned really quickly that I, there was just some things I couldn't figure out myself. And so he was the guy that, man, he would not mind just sitting talking with me as I asked him questions. I remember visiting some of his rentals and rehabs early on and just going, wow, like he, he he's doing things I never would have thought of. And so, yeah, in fact, I'm just, as I talk about it, I probably need to shoot him a text or call and tell him Thank you. And, um, just had a, he had a big impact on my journey for sure.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Having somebody who's, you know, a couple rungs up the ladder than we are, being able to see what they do and how they do it is uh is so crucial to to our career's development. So shout out to Mike. Thank you for helping Britt get to where he is today.
0: Yeah.
1: All right. So second to last question. This is about your lessons learned. Um, every deal, you know, not all deals go well, some of them go bad, but in those deals that go bad are the biggest lessons for our career. So Give me one deal and the biggest lesson you learned from it.
0: Yeah. So this is actually a really recent deal. I bought this deal back in mid 2022. Uh, this deal went through the hurricane and I end up taking uh, my only and biggest loss of my career in this deal. I just, just closed on it like six weeks ago. I lost somewhere like $75,000 on this deal. And so there was a lot of lessons learned, um, but I think the biggest lesson for me was that I will never and will never again adjust my buying criteria. And I think that we were getting into a market where I was having a hard time finding deals. And so I shifted my um, buying criteria, I mean, just a smidge. And it came back to haunt me uh, significantly. In fact, I ended up selling a few deals for very little profit and break even Um, because of that. And so, and I had just adjusted that right as the market started to shift. So it was certainly poor timing on my part, but I can tell you again, it will never happen again. Um, My criteria is what it is. And until something glaringly jumps out and tells me I need to change it, um, it's not going to change. And so it got me to where I was, decided to adjust it, really bad mistake. So Yeah.
1: yeah, I feel like that's a really, it's a hard lesson to learn, but it's a very valuable one because if you're going through a deal drought, you haven't closed on something in a while. Um, it's so easy to want to shift your criteria and just be like, okay, maybe if, you know, maybe if it's in a bad metro that's shrinking, that's not so bad. Uh, maybe I can make it work. But once those uh, those little voices start talking in your head, make sure and shut them up because, man, it, you got to make your money on the close, or else things like this can happen.
0: You're right. All right.
1: That leads us to the very last question. This is for the listeners. I'm sure people want to reach out, get in contact with you. What is the best way for them to do that?
0: Yeah. So I'm all over social media right now. We're big pump on it. So you can find me on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, YouTube. We're doing a lot of YouTube shorts, uh, LinkedIn, just about any platform that you name. We're out there and we're pretty active right now. We would love to interact with your audience.
1: Cool. And that is uh, B-R-I-T-F-O-S-H-E-E, Britt Foshi. If you guys want to find him on any of those Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, YouTube, it's all Britt Um, I will put those links in the show notes. So if you guys want to reach out, just click the little, little more in the description. It'll pull down the full description and in there you can find those links. Awesome. All right, Britt,
0: that wraps it up.
1: Thank you very much for hopping on the show.
0: Gabe, thanks for having me, man.
1: Absolutely. For everybody is here with us. Thank you guys for showing up. You are the reason we do this. So if you guys have any questions whatsoever, reach out to me, Gabe with real estate investing Club.com. And if you guys want to support the show, all we ask is give us a like, subscribe, share all that jazz. Other than that, I hope you guys have a great week. Keep rocking real estate. And I look forward to seeing you on the next episode. All right. Before I officially sign off, I have a quick announcement to make.